Good morning. How y'all doing? Good. Happy Valentine's Day almost. Some of you are in your red. You look darling. Uh, so I'm in a season right now where I'm not sleeping good, and um, which used to be my superpower. No matter what I went through, I could sleep. Well, whatever. I'm not sleeping good right now. And do you just ever have random thoughts that just, yeah, you're women, that come into your mind at night? I, I thought of a hundred things I need to tell Hillary to do. I had a hundred panics of stuff I need to do. But one of the, the funny ones was all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, I said something completely wrong the other day. And I'm that person, I hate to say it, that, you know, is in the audience. I don't ever hold them like, oh, no, they said something wrong. Because when you're up teaching, sometimes you just say things in your mind. You think you said certain thing. But <laughs> I said the other day, did y'all not catch it? That where I was talking about uh, the importance of women. And I said Paul had four daughters. Did I say Paul had four daughters? Why didn't y'all say something to me? <laughs> Paul's not married. He didn't have four daughters. Who do you think I'm thinking of? Philip. Okay, so Philip had four daughters that prophesied, but were prophets. So I just needed to correct that. Nobody texted me. Nobody said anything because y'all are precious and you're like, she's going crazy. Um, you know, yeah, because Paul was not married. Okay. And, you know, he was one of those, which I guess if y'all can't control yourself, just get married. No, I'm just kidding. So, uh, but anyway, I don't know what made me think of that in the middle of the night, but Paul did not have four daughters who prophesied. Okay, Philip did. And so there you go. I'm going to correct that. Um, so uh, this week, uh, it, it's been a hard week for me. Grief is a, is a terrible thing. Um, and I think I've told you this before, if you know anybody who is in it, I think one of the greatest books I've, I'm still reading it and have ever read is, I think it's called The First Dose is Hope. And it's by a neurosurgeon who is an amazing believer, and uh, he lost his son, tragically. And I, I was telling Rob one day, I said, if, if you want to know me, you've got to read this book. I, the way he puts it together, he's so grounded, and but just the pain and, and everything. And so I wanted to throw that out there um, because it's hard and it, it comes in waves. And I was thinking on the way here, uh, it, it's a hard, ugh, hard weekend if you've had an athlete and you're, and you're living through it. So on, on one, one hand, you sit and you watch boys you love play, and on the other hand, your son's gone. And so it's hard to live through some of that, and then it just it shows up and you just have to survive it. But I got to thinking about Zach this morning, and just the image of him. Well, and then it's like once you get here, everything spurs you. Last night I was talking to Rob. He was working nights, and I was in my office studying, and I was reading through some of the Psalms and I, I came across Psalm 34 and I thought, gosh, that's such a good Psalm for him. And so I called him and I said, Hey, I want to read you uh, a Psalm and you could see him get out his highlighter. And I said, <laughs> he goes, hold on. He pulls out his Bible at his desk. He's got his highlighter. And I go, and I started to read. He goes, well, what? I go, I'm going to read the whole Psalm. He's like, Oh, Okay, I think he thought he was about to highlight one verse. It was so, I'm like, dude, we about to read a whole psalm. And so, and I said, and when we read it, I'll show you the ones, the verses specifically that made me think of you. And so we talked about that. And I said, gosh, I wonder what it, I wonder what this says in the message. Let's read it in the message. So I grabbed the message and I start to read it. And I go, God, that was really good. And I'm just kind of flipping around. And it happened to be Zach's message. And then I see the Psalms that he highlighted. Oh, that sent me for a loop. You know, because most of it, you know where he was, that it was pain. And so on the way this morning, I was thinking about him and I thought, gosh, I can just see him in the middle of all the DBs, all the defensive backs. He's that guy 
He was that guy that was dancing in the middle of all of the backs and getting them revved up for the game and, you know, all that and dancing. And I thought nobody had a clue how much pain you were actually in, that you're the one. They think you're cheering them on to get in the fight, but what you're doing is you're really cheering yourself on to stay in the fight. And I thought, huh, I'm driving here. I'm like, you know what, Zach, you and I aren't very different. Because that's exactly what I do. Like, I don't feel like being in the fight sometimes. But, oh, I'm going to have a breakdown on stage today. <laughs> but I get in the middle of the huddle for you guys. And I'm like, we got this. We got it. We're going to stay in the game. And this is the only way. So just know, I'm only vulnerable with you because I want you to know we're all on the same playing field trying to save this. I don't love being vulnerable, to be quite honest. It's why I don't speak into the camera for Instagram very much. There's something about that that's super vulnerable to me. More than standing up in front of 200 women and crying my guts out. I don't know why that is, but it frightens me. But I know I need to do it more sometimes for people so that they understand that, you know what, we're, we're all in this game. Grief never leaves you. You have to learn to carry it. And sometimes you get tired. And so you just have to keep, and I cannot imagine what I would do if I did not have hope. I cannot imagine living through that kind of pain. And so I just want to encourage you, get your face in this book. Because I am telling you that when things happen, you're only going to be as strong as your preparation. And so it has to be the anchor of your soul. There you go. There's my breakdown for the day. I, I don't have a funny story even to like make you laugh and to, you know, get you going. Thanks, my sweet pea. How are you? This is the one that's going to take over my ministry. She knows more right now than most of the adults that I know. All right, let's pray and I'm going to get myself together. Woo, we feeling all right? Did everybody need to cry? I might as well just cry it out right now so that I can then get through the rest of the, the stuff. So why fake it? I'm too tired to fake it anymore, to be quite honest. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for a family um, of believers that come together in one spirit and we just seek your face. And so, God, I pray that through my weakness, you'll be incredibly strong. And, Lord, I pray that um, by being vulnerable with each other, which is scary, that we will realize that we're all in this thing together. And that really, the only way we can get through this rough world and the suffering and all that comes with this broken world is that we have a powerful spirit within us, which tells us that we have a great hope to look forward to. And um, soon, we will be together soon. But until then, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to live out a purpose. Help me to feel the pain of those around and help me to see the dilemma that we are in in the world, but but not feel it so deeply that I get stuck or I feel like it's all on my shoulders. Lord, all week long, over and over, I have encountered the verse, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, I thank you that we participate with where you're already working and that it doesn't all fall on our own shoulders. Lord, I pray that you would... Um, Allow me to grow in public. Allow me to say um, what I'm learning. Say wrong things and correct them later. And just, uh, Lord, have my face in your book to understand it myself. And then to possibly lead my friends through it. We love you. And, and I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you. I thank you for a narrative that I have anchored my life on. Um, I thank you that the climax of that narrative was a time where you laid down your life to pay for my sin. 
And because of that, I have a great hope of the great resurrection. And so, Lord, we love you. May you be pleased today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Open up your Bibles. Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Last week we talked about that beautiful word scattered, um, it can mean two things, really. It can mean like the scattering of ashes when someone dies, which you scatter and it's gone. But it can also mean um, scattering as scattering seed. And that's, that's what you see here, that they have been scattered to be planted. And um, I encouraged you, sometimes it's hard. We get stomped, right, and persecuted or we're forced to scatter. But they were planted and Philip continued to teach um, the word of God, and they paid attention to him. Why? Because the signs pointed to the authenticity of what he was saying. He is preaching the gospel of the kingdom and that Jesus is the Christ. And so by performing these signs, they are pointing towards the kingdom that he is proclaiming, and people are believing. In verse 9 it says, so here's where we are today, in verse 9, it says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, isn't that interesting there? Paid attention paid attention, but they believed Philip. It's more than a belief in signs. It's more than uh, paying attention to signs and wonders. They're believing his message that the signs and wonders are authenticating, pointing to. They believe Philip, and he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had, had, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages in Samaria. What a story. Magus, okay, Simon Magus. That word actually was originally used to describe 
the Median priestly line, like the Medes, the Persians and the Medes. Um, but it came to be known as someone who practiced various kinds of sorcery and possibly quackery, right? If you want to go and delve into that and research it, there's a ton there for you to read. I just chose not to, right? So the question is, was it trickery or was it demonic? Well, that is the question, isn't it? Okay. Uh, at any rate, he had impressed his fellow Samaritans with his magical powers so much that he had presented himself as the highest official of God. In other words, the channel both of divine power and revelation. In other words, much like a false messiah. All right, that is how he has presented himself. But here, it was him this time who was impressed. He was impressed. So whether his power was trickery or it was demonic, now he recognized what? True power, power beyond anything he had ever seen or experienced. Um, very much like if you think back to the Exodus, can you think of an example? How about the Egyptian priests, Pharaoh's priests, right? Who performed all kinds of what you might argue to be either trickery or demonic, right? But when they saw what Moses could do, there is no comparison. So it's kind of like that. It says Simon believed. What do we do with that? He believed. Well, the question is, what did he believe, right? I think a really good verse to look at in this case would be John chapter 2. Let's look at that. John chapter 2, verse 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. I just think that is a good verse to ponder right here at this time because there's so much speculation if you read through commentaries about Simon Magus, right? That did he believe, did he not believe? Uh, did he believe because he saw the signs and wonders? Um, and But I love that John too, because he says, many believe because of the things they saw. But Jesus didn't need someone to represent man, to explain different people or to stand up for any individual because what does he know? He knows the heart of every individual. And so it says that he believed he was baptized and that he remained around Philip all the time. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, I put, wow, it appears like something significant has happened. It would be pretty amazing to watch someone claiming to be God's highest instrument to accept defeat and follow Philip, right? But what do we feel? I feel like, why is he always hanging around Philip? That's where the power is, right? It's like, I want to hang out with the cool guys. I want to sit at the cool people's table. It's what it seems like to me a little bit that he is stuck to his hip because he is the one wielding this kind of power. Um, and so look at verse 14. Oh, I got to go back. Hold on. Let's see. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Okay, what do you think's behind that? It's what I, I wrote in my notes. So what do you think is beneath verse 14? Yeah, I think there was some trust, I, I, but I don't know all the talk, but there had to be some from the Jewish church. There had to be concern, excitement, or both. What is going on in Samaria that they're hearing about? 
On the one hand, it is fulfilling Jesus's proclamation, right? Go therefore into all Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, right? Make disciples. So we see that, but it hadn't started with the apostles. This is Philip, right? So didn't the apostles have a responsibility to kind of shepherd over what was going on and to watch uh, what was happening? So they hear what is happening. I think they need to have some confirmation, some oversight. And so they send Peter and John, right? Makes sense. Uh, I think it's interesting because this is the last real mention of John in the book of Acts, really. Interesting. The only time you really hear about John in this is when he is accompanying Peter. I have my thought about that. I think Peter leaned on John after his denial. And I think it was hard to let go. I think they were tied closely together at heart. I think it's interesting that John is one of the ones that accompanied him to Samaria, because do you remember where James and John got their nickname? When they asked, should, should we call down fire on this uh, Samaritan city because they rejected Jesus? And, you know, so Jesus ends up calling them the what? Sons of thunder, right? So here you have Peter, uh, the one who preached the message at Pentecost, and he is accompanied by the son of thunder, and they come down to see what is going on. Um, they want to see firsthand. One thing we do not see, we do not see them preaching. We do not see them baptizing and we do not see them performing signs. So in no way do I think they're attempting to make Phil Philip's work invalid. Okay. I don't see a lack of trust there at all. I don't see them going back in as the lead pastor, trying to correct everything that Philip was teaching. It seems like he was doing a fantastic job and they go there with one thought only, and that is to pray that they receive the Holy Spirit. All right. So why the delay? There's all kinds of theological issues in this chapter, right? Why the delay? Well, I can think of a couple of reasons for both sides, right? Because there needs to be, or maybe there needs to be, some form of witness and evidence that what is happening in Samaria is the same as to what happened in Jerusalem, right? For both parties, to be quite honest, because... I wrote, some special evidence may have been necessary to assure the Samaritans, accustomed to being despised by the people of Jerusalem, that they were fully incorporated in the new community of believers. But on the other hand, what about the evidence for the people in Jerusalem? The Spirit has actually come upon the Samaritans just like them. It's one thing to be baptized by the freelancer Philip, but not until they were welcomed by the apostles, Peter and John, did they experience signs attesting to their membership into the spirit-possessed society. So in many ways, primarily, it was a token of solidarity, of fellowship. Do you know what the Samaritans were often called? The lost sheep of Israel. Do you remember that? Right, they were, do you remember at best they were half-breeds? Okay, at worst they thought they were foreigners because they had intermarried in with the Gentiles and polluted the Jewish religion and the issues of uh, that were always at stake with the Samaritans were two different issues, two of them, right? The temple, remember they had built their own. And then under Judean rule, it had been destroyed. When they had come back from exile to rebuild a temple, the Samaritans weren't allowed to participate in that at all. So it was always about the temple and where to worship. Remember that conversation with the Samaritan woman. Those were the issues. You Jews say we have to travel to Jerusalem. My people say we go up on our mountain, Gerizim, to worship the Lord. So the temple was the issue and then the Messiah. 
right? And the Samaritans only believed the first five books of the law. So they were waiting for that prophet that was like Moses to come that was spoken of in Deuteronomy. And so they were the law. They were the fringes. They were on the fringe of Judaism. Do you understand that? The lost sheep of Israel. And so in many ways, this, what I call the Samaritan Pentecost, it implies a new nucleus going out from a truly restored Israel. The whole kingdom of David restored together, right? It is through the restoration of Israel that all nations will be blessed. And so you see this. You see the Pentecost in Jerusalem, and you see this Pentecost in Samaria, and it was through the apostles, the same, together, united. Now the question is, must there be a laying on of hands? See, this is what we do. We always read the scripture and we want a formula, right? We always do. We want A plus B to always equal C. We're looking for formulas that we can do correctly, right, to be accepted. I mean, we could go back. We always want to go back to that. But I'm going to tell you, um, if the laying on of hands was necessary for the receiving of the Holy Spirit, you would think it would have been stated more explicitly in the Scripture somewhere. Don't you think? And you would think that Paul would mention it. Like in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, when he tells us that the Spirit is anointing us, that it is a seal. He is a seal and a guarantee of what is coming. You would think that when he describes this, he would talk about the laying on of hands, but he doesn't. You would think that when he lists the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, he would say something about the laying on of hands. And then I love, look at, I'm going to look at this with you. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians, is that where I want to go? Yeah, 1, 14 through 16. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit so you understand the context. It's called divisions in the church in my Bible. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by closed people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What is he talking? Well, good grief. Now, they're arguing over who baptized them. Well, I was baptized by Apollo. Well, I follow this person. Well, I go to this church. Well, my preacher preaches this way. We believe in exegetical preaching. Well, we believe in topical preaching. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. But here's the point. Can you imagine if the laying on of hands was required? What is he saying? I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Because it's not about that. And I just sit back and I think, boy, look at what we do. If the laying on of hands was necessary for the receiving of the Spirit, can you imagine what that argument would have been like? So I don't see it. One commentator says this, The Spirit doesn't respond to certain stimuli, such as laying on of hands. It is God, not magicians or even apostles, who gives us his own spirit. Let me say a half power version. It's, and I'm going to say it like I did about the temple. It's not that God doesn't or can't use the laying on of hands. Because we see right here, what? 
He does, right? He's not confined to that. It's not that God's spirit wasn't active and useful in the temple. We saw Pentecost happen in in an area of the temple. It's not that. The point is what? He is not confined there. We always want to put God in a box. We want to put it in a formula so that we have the power to what? Maneuver. So don't be judging Simon too hard. Because don't we like to have the power to maneuver and to give and to set boundaries of who receives and who doesn't receive and how they receive and all of that kind of stuff. So I just think that is um, a little thing we need to think about. Now, there's also the issue, if you read in advance, the question of the timing of and proximity to water baptism of the receiving of the Spirit. So... If you grew up Southern Baptist like me, you're like, what What are you talking about? What do you mean they believed and they got baptized and then they waited for the laying on of hands for the filling of the Spirit? You're like, whoa, 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 what's that all about? Well, here's what I know, which I don't know if it's a lot. Here's my bullet points. In the Scripture, sometimes... The Spirit comes sometimes with apostles present and sometimes without. Sometimes with the laying on of hands, sometimes not. Sometimes very close to water baptism, sometimes not. Sometimes before water baptism, just hold up. We're not quite there yet. We'll get there with the Gentiles. Sometimes after Pentecost, the Spirit falls on the apostles and their message is repent, be baptized, and be filled. With the Samaritans, it's similar. Believe, they were baptized, but then there was a delay and then they were filled. With the Gentiles, they're going to believe, be filled and then be baptized with the eunuch that we're going to get to. That's a whole different scenario. He is going to believe and be baptized, and then we're left hanging, right? So much that it bothers us that later on, they've added in a little section, a section of verse just to kind of, I guess, make us feel better, you know? And so... If you want to create a formula, you're not going to be able, you're not going to find it in the scripture. You're not. And so the bottom line is that I believe that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that he is uh, a seal, ain't nothing else getting in there. We are full of the Spirit, and I believe that he is a deposit guaranteeing what has happened inside of us, Right? And I believe at the end of the day that it is God who sees the heart and I can leave it up to that. I also believe that there will be evidence of the spirit in someone's life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I think that you will see different gifts that come out of individuals as uh, the spirit gives, but we are all in Christ Jesus, in one spirit, united in Christ Jesus. How it happens, I'm leaving that up to him. I don't believe it is a, it's a formula. Philip performs signs authenticating his message. So he, the power that he has is pointing towards a message. But then Peter and John, they show up, they lay their hands on people, and those people showed outward signs of the Spirit. So all of a sudden, they have giving power. Ooh, this gets Simon's attention. Do you notice that? I think it is interesting that he doesn't ask for the spirit, but the power to wield the spirit. And then he offers to pay for it. Hmm. Wow. I put, this is a technique. Sometimes I speak for the people (laughs) in my notes. 
wow, this is a technique worth purchasing, a way of gaining a share in the leadership of this movement. And then I put, we follow this, we follow the direction of the spirit. We don't control or manipulate the spirit. Maybe you need to write that down in your notes. That's worth pondering. We're not the magician trying to pay off the pastor to give us the power, but boy, we do this. We follow the direction of the spirit. We don't control or manipulate the spirit. I always go back to the whole, that whole Bible study experiencing God. That is the gist of it. We don't control the spirit. The spirit of God is at work. We are invited to what? Join the spirit. He is not ours to wield. We listen. We lean into the spirit. We obey the spirit and we follow the spirit's voice. And that's what we're going to see happening with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. He is following the voice. Peter tells Simon, he has no part or share in this matter for your heart isn't upright before God. And he tells, repent and pray. This is not how it works, buddy. You don't get to control this. You don't have any part or lot. It is not your decision. You cannot wield it. And it says, for you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I don't know about that. I need to think about that for a long time. I can ponder about what has gone on with Simon. Like I can see it as a movie in my head. This is all pencil. It's all my imagination. Please don't make it doctrine. But I just sit and I think, who is he? How did he end up this way? Is he that young boy that had to con and trick and do whatever to survive? And now he's at this place of power and he's got this. Is it the, the total con job that's going on? If in the middle of the con, has he actually run into like demonic power that now, I mean, what is this all about? But at the end of the day, his heart was not right. Peter saw it. Now people speculate all the time right? Was he a true believer? Was he not a true believer? At the end of the day, that is not my job to determine, but here, here's some of the thoughts about that. He's introduced as the protagonist of this story. So there's a point in the story. Uh, he never associates what he believes with the message like the people did. He probably just believed the signs. Um, there's a separate treatment regarding him and the Samaritans in the story. And I think he saw himself separate, exceptional. And you see him wishing to buy the power to wield the spirit, but he mentions nothing about receiving it. This in no way aligns with the spirit of Jesus to cho who chose to empty himself out and become man. So you see this pride happening in Simon. It seems like the, the story ends and he's still trapped in chains and we never see him being remorseful. I don't know. People speculate. There's a lot written about him in some of the... Uh, extracurricular biblical writings or historical writings or the writings of the Gnostics that he ended up being a true enemy of Paul and all of that. There's really nothing to prove all that. So we're left with what? Question. We don't like that. But here's the thing. That's not our job, is it? it is it our job to determine that? Like we just want to know you know what our job is? Work out my own faith in fear and trembling. <laughs> that is my own job, right? And so there are many things that I can learn from this. And, uh, and whether or not Simon came to true faith is not one that I'm going to spend a lot of time looking at.
All right. And so we see in this, we see the plan coming out of making disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria. And now we're about to see into the uttermost parts of the earth. It's almost like we get this microcosm right up front of the Great Commission. It's kind of like, you know how in creation, in Genesis, the first chapters are like a microcosm of the situation. It's four fast events, it seems. It's written about in 11 chapters. It's about the creation of all things, the creation of man, and the catastrophe of rebellion. Where we end up. And then it's like we go back, right? And then from Abraham, we follow this story uh, over family and time about how he's going to fix the problem. We get to see a split, a, a, a moment in those the first 11 chapters of the predicament. Here, it's almost like in a row, we get to see the beauty of what is happening. Making disciples in Jerusalem, we see the Pentecost, the birth of the church in Judea and Samaria. We see what is the Samaritan Pentecost. And then we're going to go to this next beautiful story of the Ethiopian eunuch, which is one of my favorites. All right, so let's read it. Verse 26. Oh, and by the way, let's not avoid, I didn't say anything about 25, but look at that. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. But what did they do the whole way back? They preached the gospel in all of where? Samaria. They got some good news happening when they get back to Jerusalem to tell, to tell the believers. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. There's a lot in that in my mind. I just highlight that and ponder that later. That's a really dry place. You're going out to the far regions. It's real dry out there. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He began with this scripture. It's where he started. He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded that the chariot stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself, well, and we'll go there next. All right. Ooh, I love this story so much. Okay, one of the major themes in Luke is the... uh universalization of the gospel, that the gospel is for all people. All right. And one of Luke's favorite, remember Luke, why am I talking about Luke? Because he's the author, right? I just, every now and then I stop myself because I want to remind you how we started this whole study, right? That Luke acts very often is viewed as what? One work having been divided. So a lot of times you'll see Luke dash Acts and Luke is the author. And one of his favorite prophets that he quotes a ton is who? Isaiah. Okay. And in Isaiah 52 10, 
We see it right there. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What does that remind you of? Go. Make disciples. In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and what? To the ends of the earth. You remember how I'm always saying that, you know, if you know Old Testament, it brings the New Testament to life because they're speaking a language they understand, right? And so you can't help but think of the prophet Isaiah. And so right now, this is what we're seeing play out. The ancient world was not just divided into Jews and Greeks and Romans. That, that was predominantly it. But there were those that lived beyond the fringes of the Roman Empire. And in the New Testament, often Paul will talk about experiencing non-Greek speaking people. Those are people that lived outside this massive empire. They were on the fringes and they would have been seen as living at the ends of the earth. I love the fact that God engineered this entire plan. Look what happened. An angel of the Lord tells him to go. And then what? The spirit tells him to go join the man. And then providentially, he overhears the eunuch reading the precise portion of Isaiah 53, which is a portion that I promise you, Philip was ready to jump in. This whole thing is led by the Spirit, and this is how God works. We have to lean into the Spirit, and the Spirit leads us so we can hear His voice to go participate with what he is doing. I remember um, <laughs> when I first stepped out into ministry, I've told this story before, but when I first stepped out into ministry and I was going to leave teaching academically, I was having an absolute nervous breakdown because I'm like, I'm, I'm going to starve. Like I just could not see it make any sense whatsoever, right? And I had people walking alongside of me, but... I was like, this does not make sense to me. How is this going to work? Because why in the world would people support me to get what they should be getting for free at church? I'm going to starve. I need to keep teaching academically. It's ministry and a check. Like, it's no, that's not a bad deal, right? It wasn't a very big check. Can I just tell you that? But, and so I was encouraged to step out and it scared me to death. And I was honestly having a breakdown over it. And this one day, I'd walked into Larry Fraley's office about uh, start being in ministry. He was so gracious and so kind, but he had no idea on the inside. I was I needed Xanax. I was having a panic attack. Okay, and um, I remember, you know, he gave me the forms to fill out. He was so positive about it, right? And if you know him, he's so businesslike or whatever, but he was so gentle with me. He was so positive about it. Like, it didn't shock him at all. This was going to work. <laughs> he gave me this form to fill out. And I went back to, at the time, it was Paradise Bakery. Became Panera. I've got my opinion about that. Um, I go to Paradise Bakery, and I have these forms to fill out. And one of the, you know, all these forms have some of the same questions, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And I wanted to put in the bread line, like, <laughs> I don't know where I see, I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. Like that question needs to be off of anything in ministry. I hate that question because it's not, I don't know where we're headed with this thing. I was having a panic attack. So I'm trying to fill all this out. I can't, and I'm seriously sick to my stomach. So I get a text from some friends that random, and they know I'm thinking about stuff, and they send me, they say, hey, Shannon, have you ever done the Bible study experiencing God? Because I think, I think you, it would be good to read this book, and they send me the picture, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I did that when it first came out, right? And so I'm thinking, okay, okay, so I can't fill out the form. I'm nervous wreck. I get up and I go to leave. And when I'm walking out 
of Paradise Bakery. To my left is a lady by the name of Jill Rhodes, who I think is one of the best Bible study teachers ever. And she was a mentor to me when my kids were young. She was that Mecca of what a spiritual woman should look like. Like she would say things and I would think, yeah, I, I can't do that. Like, are you, when, when Hillary was walking through her terribles at four and a half, I've told y'all stories. She's the one that told me to pray out loud. Right. So I hadn't seen her in years and she's sitting right there as I walk out the door and I'm like, she's like, girl. And so she has this way of hugging you that when she hugs you, you feel like she sees your soul. And so she's like, what's going on? And I just went, ah, and I sat down and she's like, what's happening? I go, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm doing. Should I say? And she gets, she's so calm and she got this calm smile on her face and she had a book sitting over there and she said, maybe I think this book's for you. And she scooted across the desk and it was the book Experiencing God. See, that's how... When the Spirit puts things together, I could tell you story after story after story about where God is moving and we join Him. We don't, it's not ours to maneuver. He maneuvers us. And so you see the Spirit work in that way and it just so happens, right? The angel said, go here. And then the Spirit says, go over there and join him close. And then when you're close enough to where the spirit wants you to be, guess what? You overhear things that you need to be a part of. This happens to me all the time. I hope it's the spirit, but I overhear conversations. I tell you about that. And I'm like, Shannon, stay out of it. Stay out of it. Stay out of it. But sometimes I can just feel the wind carry me over and go, you know what? I happen to know that portion of scripture uh, do you understand what you're reading? What's the answer? How can I? Unless somebody helps me. And it is the most beautiful thing. I'm, okay, so stick with that because we're coming back to Isaiah because it's mind-blowing. Um, but let's talk about who this guy is, okay? This Ethiopian man, all right? He is an Ethiopian man. He is a black man. And I want to read you some pretty amazing quotes from a man by the name of Snowden. And he wrote a book called Blacks in Antiquity. It's really interesting. But here are some of the things he says. Ethiopians were the yardstick by which antiquity measured colored people. Think about that. All it is is one color in all of us just greater or less, right? That's it. It's a pigment. We either are full of that or we have less. Or if you're my daughter, she would say, I have none. She's see-through, right? White. But I think this is so interesting because the Ethiopian, their darkness, their description was the yardstick of which to measure any ethnicity, any people of color. So keep that in mind. And then he says this, which I think is awesome. What is important to note is that unlike the case in the West in the last three centuries, there is no evidence in antiquity of widespread prejudice against a particular group of people simply because of their color or even a combination of their color and ethnic features. That is something much more recent out of absolute ignorance. He was from the area south of Egypt, which today we would call, it would be part of the Sudan. He was a court official. Um, of the Nubian kingdom, between which was one of the major powers south of Egypt, and it was uh, from 540 BC to 339 AD. Powerful man. He was, he had traveled an incredibly long distance. We know he was literate, and we know he was of high social standard, standing. Now, we also know he's a eunuch. 
So this term, I think we talked about this when I taught Daniel. This term can actually just mean official, but I don't think that's what it means here. Um, it normally refers to a man who has been castrated and often dismembered. Now, for obvious reasons. Because if you're going to work, right, in the ancient Near East, and you're going to be in charge of king's harems, then they're going to handle that situation. And if you are going to be closely tied to the queen, they would handle that situation because that would do away with any illegitimate children, any uh, other bloodline starting. You can think of all the different complications, but he worked, right? What did it say he did? He, he was over all the treasure of Candace, which by the way is a title, not a personal name. Okay, and so there you go. Um, from the Jewish point of view, this put this man permanently on the fringes of the religion of their religion. Okay, Deuteronomy twenty three one. Look at it. This is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Those excluded from the assembly. Now there's debate on whether that means the assembly like coming in to worship or the assembly of the leadership of Israel. But I can tell you in the time that he was living, it would have been associated with people who were outcast from the worship. All right. So no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Wow. So from the Jewish point of view, this man was permanently on the fringes of their religion. It was interpreted to mean that eunuchs were to be excluded from God's assembly. So here's what I want you to walk away because I can't even go into Isaiah. I got three minutes. This man was on the fringes of all of it. He lived in a place that was considered the ends of the earth, on the fringes of the empire. He was on the fringe. He was the yardstick with which to judge what? Color or ethnicity. He was the outskirts of the world. He was the outskirts, the furthest, the darkest, the representation of ethnicity. And he was also what? On the fringes of God's assembly. He was an outcast because of what had taken place with him. And by the way, it, it would have been noticeable, right? Because they typically did this before puberty, which means he would have looked different. He would have sounded different. Um, you would have known that this was a eunuch, okay? So the bottom line is this. This is a major story about an outsider. And what is amazing to me is I wonder what on earth drew him? Think about that. What drew him? I sat thinking about, he's on the outskirts. He is so far south of Egypt. What made him take this trip? What drew him to the God of the Jewish people? What made him take such a long trip to come to a place? And then what welcome do you think he received? And then I thought, how could he have known? Well, I, I mean, my mind ponders like he was in charge of the treasury of Candace. Were there old treasures of the Jewish people somewhere from Egypt? Ah, Egypt. Did he, did he have old volumes of what happened to these people that were in Egypt and they were freed from bondage and, and all the stories about how their God dwelt with them and that he would go before them and he provided for them? What do we know about Egypt? All through the Exodus, it talks about in the Old Testament that that is what made God famous. They all knew. Word had spread. I don't know. But something drew him about that God that was personal with his people, 
that seemed to be a God that they described as slow to anger, abounding in love. You don't know, but he made a seriously long trip to come to a place that would consider him what? An outsider. And we're going to see what happens. This is the most beautiful microcosm of go and make disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea, 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 did I do that right? And Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's all, all the outsiders, and we're going to see it in the book of Isaiah, which is marvelous. All right, don't miss next week. Lord, thank you so much that you love the outsider. Thank you so much, God, that we cannot... Um, Outsend you, your grace, you reach deep. Thank you, Lord, that you stayed faithful to your promise, that you stayed faithful to a stiff-necked people, that you brought your, pro your promises to fruition even when they weren't faithful, you were faithful. And through Jesus and his death and resurrection, he ushered in the kingdom, the true kingdom, and it's for all. You started with the Jew, all of them, the entire house of David. The 12 tribes, the lost sheep, you united them, you filled them, and you sent them out. And your gospel of the kingdom will reach to the ends of the earth, to the outcast, to the desert places. And so, God, I pray that we would have our face in this book, that we'll dance with it, we'll think about it, we'll ponder it, we'll apply it. It is a story. And, Lord, when we come back next week, we'll realize the importance of the story and knowing it and knowing where the climax was and knowing where it is headed that we're a part of this beautiful narrative of salvation. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.